Hi, I'm Douglas Beale. I'm a interventional radiologist and interventional pain management. I'm dual board certified, and I have a practice treating patients with all kinds of pain issues. Primarily, one of the biggest things I see is vertebral compression fractures. So one of the issues about treating vertebral fractures is the recognition of a vertebral fracture. And one of the things that is somehow stumps people is they use the definition of a vertebral fracture as they know it when they see it. So that's not all always good. It's really good to have objective evidence of a fracture. So vertebral fractures, 20 to 25% is compressed over 10 to 20% of the surface area is a mild fracture. Uh, 25, 40% is moderate, greater than 40% is severe. That's the semi-quantitative criteria for diagnosing vertebral fractures. And everybody that has fractures like that, if you use that just to be able to recognize that, depending on which part of the vertebral body is collapsed, and any part would be eligible for the semi-quantitative criteria. This would be necessary to identify a fracture. One of the things that we talk about in terms of fractures and, and whether to treat or not is there's a cognitive dissonance of people with vertebral compression fractures. And the cognitive dissonance is this. Fractures come in two varieties. One, one variety is something that's painful and the pain is moderate to severe or severe or it's worse. The other type of fracture is a fracture that is primarily asymptomatic. So the asymptomatic fractures don't need to be treated in terms of augmentation unless they're unstable, which is a, is a rare event, which I won't address. So people have a hard time understanding when to treat, when not to treat, because vertebral fractures are exceedingly common, and to have a painless vertebral fracture is a quite a common event. In fact, the average is about one in seven people over the age of 65 have a painful vertebral compression fracture. D'Souza had an article said one in five Spanish women, an article in Spain, had fractures, and many of which did not even know they had a fracture. So a good rule of thumb is if it hurts, treat it. If it doesn't hurt, don't treat it. And so somebody with a painful vertebral compression fracture, what happens if they come in with moderate to severe, severe pain and they don't get treated? A lot of people say, well, the primary treatment plan should be bracing rest and analgesics. Well, that's not based on anything. That's not The, the literature says that, that that really shouldn't be done. It's based on tradition and inertia. That's it. The bracing literature is vapor. It doesn't exist. In fact, Kim and Bailey did two separate articles that studied hard brace, soft brace, no brace, eight weeks, 12 weeks, acute fracture, subacute fracture, and studied the different derivations of this. No difference, no difference, no difference in terms of patient outcome. Rezluska did a paper, meta-analysis, studying meta-analysis of patients who were treated with optimal pain management. His conclusion was there's really no data supporting the delay in treatment of patients with optimal pain management in terms of patients with painful vertebral compression fractures. If we were to take a pain patient with a painful fracture that was moderate to severe uh, and unabating, what, what would happen to that? Well, there are two good papers on this one. One is a paper by Suzuki et al. Took 107 patients and found that even after a year of non-surgical management, bracing rest, analgesics, 76% of the people still had moderate pain or severe pain. 76% of patients after a year still had pain. Borneman did a paper 
that followed patients along, 65 patients after six weeks of non-surgical management, followed by an additional six weeks if they did not do well after the initial six weeks, which is a common recommendation by insurance companies. So how many patients improved after the first six weeks? One. How many patients total improved after another six weeks? Five. And the conclusion on this was that non-surgical management has no role in the treatment of patients with painful vertebral compression fractures. So there's, there's data absolutely to the opposite of what's been the tradition. And so whenever somebody comes in, we all should think of the treatment as more to the patient, tailored to the patient, more specific to the condition that they have, meaning that the amount of dysfunction, malfunction, the amount of lack of function, and the degree of pain, and the total disruption in quality of life. So if somebody comes in and the information that I'm about ready to tell you comes from a UCLA RAND appropriateness methodology article, and this is a standard methodology article that's been done dozens and dozens of times for different conditions and different specialties to provide expert recommendations as to what to do. Randomized control trials are good and they provide valuable information, but we should not worship at the altar of randomized control trials. There are other sources of information. Real-world data, post-market trials, registries provide data and important information uh, about how people do in terms of a treatment over time and real-world data using real-world criteria. So the appropriateness methodology was developed so expert recommendations could be formulated to tell people what to do, and this was published last year. Some of the authors on this were Josh Hirsch, Sean Tutton, I was a second author on it, Renee Chambers, and other experts, multi-specialty experts, gave recommendations as to when to treat. Essentially, what it boils down to is the more the patient hurts, the greater the degree of lack of function, the greater the degree of suffering and kyphosis, the greater the degree of spinal deformity, the greater the patient is affected, the more they need to be treated. In fact, there was no time limitation or time recommendation at all on, on these recommendations. It was based on patient symptoms. So if the patient came in and had a low amount of pain or was improving, even a low to moderate amount of pain, and they were improving, the recommendation was to do maybe bracing, non-surgical management, maybe even a watch and wait if they were not that symptomatic, maybe no treatment at all if they were asymptomatic. But if they were symptomatic, they needed to be treated because of the high risk to the patient of, of permanent deformity, permanent kyphosis. The time to fix fractures is early to get the best outcome in terms of anatomic fixation. If you had an automobile accident or had a fall from the ladder and you broke your femur and it was angled at a 45-degree angle, would you let it heal for eight, six to eight weeks before you decided to put a plate on it or intramedullary nail? Or would you fix it right then? And at the same principles, uh, somehow we seem to get away from the AO principles uh, that apply to most of the bone fractures whenever it comes to the spine. But we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that at all. We do have good tools and mechanisms. So I mentioned all forms of fixing spine fractures all the way up to your implants. The most recent data comes from the SACOS trial. His lead author is David Noriega. This was recently published in the Spine Journal. And the SACOS trial compared spine jack, titanium spine implant, with balloon kyphoplasty that has been a great standard for 20 years. 
But when compared to the balloon, balloon kyphoplasty, the spine jack had better, better patient outcomes in terms of decreased pain, better height restoration in the vertebral body, and less adjacent level or distal fractures seen over the course of time. And so these three superiorities in terms of the, the jack over the balloon are the only superiorities ever been reported in 35 years of vertebral augmentation. So that's a very important distinction. Whenever we have implant technology that we can, for example, decrease the native incidence of a distal fracture, the distal fracture incidence in this patient population was about 8%. If you take somebody with a fracture and don't treat them with augmentation, the rate of a distal fracture is about 20 to 25%. That's kind of been the traditional fracture rate for quite some time is 20 to 25%. That's not the fracture rate now. So if we take an example, a post-market uh, data study called the Evolve trial that was published two years ago in the Journal of Neurosurgery, and we examine that and we determine, okay, so this the, is a post-market trial that's based on the uh, Neridian inclusion-exclusion criteria, the Neridian territories, this is Medicare, uh, care. So, uh, so if you based it on Medicare rules of the road, the local coverage determination rules of the road, and truly real-world data, how do people do? Well, people did great. They were able to have, uh, on the average, a 6.3-point reduction in pain and a dramatic improvement, nearly 40-point improvement in, in Oswestry Disability Index. So that's a tomahawk dunk of a study. That's the only time I, in my recollection I can see one that's been that positive. Out of that patient population, we know traditionally based on things like the free trial, the vapor trial, that of the and, and some of the other trials involving the treatment of osteoporosis do not involve the treatment of vertebral compression fractures. We know that the rate of vertebral fracture is about 20 to 25% in patients after of the initial incident fracture. The rate of additional or adjacent level fractures in the evolved trial is 46.7%. So nearly half of the people. So what accounts for this? Well, patients in this trial were almost 80 or older. But this is inclusion and exclusion of Medicare. This is who we get. This is who we treat. They were almost 80. They had, on the average, between three and eight comorbidities. They were sicker. And we know now that what we know in 2019 that was not present around 2000 to 2002 is that we're even worse at treating the underlying disorder. So if we wonder whether or not this shows, this shows. I've seen a great slide by Dr. Lewicki who demonstrates to us that the decreasing rate of detecting osteoporosis with DEXA scanning corresponds with a decreased rate of treatment of people's underlying disorder of osteoporosis that corresponds directly with an increased rate of hip fracture, and this was what was measured in this, this slide, which also corresponds directly to an increased rate of mortality. So all of these go hand in hand. Recognition goes hand in hand of the fracture of the osteoporosis of the treatment or lack thereof and this contributes directly to patient outcome. So what we do every day contributes directly to it. And going back to the expert recommendations and using the RAND UCLA 
appropriate methodology and expert recommendations. I would encourage everyone to use these recommendations on what to do with a patient that has a painful vertebral compression fracture because this study is conducted to such a level of granularity that it tells you what to do with the certain patient that has a certain characteristics. It gives you the seven things that are important, including spinal deformity, uh, degree of pain, degree of functional debilitation, et cetera, in terms of being able to know what to do with these people. There's no time constraint that you need to do to wait to treat these people. In fact, if you don't treat these people, they can have certainly adverse outcomes. An example of this can be seen in in the VAPOR trial. So this was a trial uh, primary investigator, Bill Clark from Australia. It's an Australian trial. And this was vertebroplasty randomized against sham treatment. Found that vertebroplasty was statistically significantly better than fake surgery for treating patients, which to me is no surprise and an appropriately done sham. Uh, but what they also found is there was, uh, if you look at the adverse events, there were two adverse events in each treatment arm. And the treatment arm for vertebroplasty is one patient had difficulty breathing because uh, of the sedation medication and then had to be revived and then then the procedure was able to be done. The other one was a patient that had an elbow fracture and this patient was uh, hemiplegic from a prior stroke with tremendous osteoporosis uh, of the of one side of his body in the upper extremity and it sustained an elbow fracture moving the patient from the journey onto the table. So for the patients that did not undergo the vertebroplasty, the vertebral augmentation, the two adverse events there, one patient was paralyzed because the spine fracture broke apart and went back either into the spinal cord or the catechina, subsequently paralyzing the patient. The other patient had to undergo a decompression, a surgical decompression effusion because uh, of the breaking apart of the vertebral body and a coronal plane from front to back. And this happens quite frequently. What happens is the vertebral body compresses as the interpedicular segment goes back into the spinal canal, usually at the thoracolumbar junction, and tends to narrow the spinal canal to a very significant degree. So if you have somebody, the message, if you have somebody uh, that doesn't meet uh, the appropriateness criteria to send them for vertebral augmentation low to, to moderate amount of pain that's getting better or uh, very little pain, then you need to follow that patient up. You need to follow them up every one to two weeks until that fracture is completely healed or you run the risk of having a fragment break off posteriorly or having the whole vertebral body break off into a 2.2 type fracture and have that coronal separation where that fracture comes back and compresses the spinal canal. So the repercussions from this can be very significant. And the ability to, to treat these patients is always a lot easier when you're treating the underlying disorder. With that, I will say thank you for your attention, listeners. I appreciate you tuning in to listen to this. And if there are any questions, comments, uh, any issues that you would like to discuss, I would say feel free to reach out to me. I'm a good communicator, and I thank you for your attention.